Wow. Thank you, Danielle, for that amazing song selection, and Cindy and uh, Peter for helping. You know, um, I don't pick the songs. Some pastors do. I don't. I let the professionals do it. <laughs> uh, and in, uh, time and time again, they know what I'm preaching on, and they select just the best songs, and Danielle, that was masterful. My hope is only Jesus. My hope is only Jesus. That was a great song. You know, it's funny, too, that um, Lauren uh, read, and, and when she read, she said, open up to Genesis 15. And if you did that, um, like I did, you went to the Bible, and do you remember where in the Bible you had to turn to? Was it kind of in the middle or the end? No, it was at the very beginning. Fifteen chapters into Genesis is where she read. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we get into the Scriptures today. That was 15 chapters into Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Thank you, Lauren, for having us do that. Okay, well, let me start. Do you remember? Do you remember this? Let me plant an image in your mind. <laughs> do you remember when you were first learning to drive? First learning to drive. Sorry, I keep picking on this, uh, Josh. Um, perhaps the first time <laughs> you got behind the wheel and took the car out on the road. Do you remember that moment when you first got behind the wheel, took the car out on the road? Remember as you rode down, drove down the road, a car was coming in the opposite lane. Do you remember what you did? Did you move to the right a little to make sure you were out of the way? Like, okay, car's coming, I need to move to the right. Or do you remember when you came upon, and I remember this, came upon one of those narrow bridges? You know, we got them all over the place in Maine, right? You come to one of those narrow bridges, you see that sign, it goes kind of like this. Um, did you move to the left into the oncoming traffic lane to avoid the bridge abutment? And what if there was a car coming in the opposite lane? Do you remember the panic you felt? Ah, what do I do now? Well, <laughs> I didn't mean to send you into PTSD this morning, um, but what I do want to do is illustrate a concept that Jonah alluded to last Sunday in his sermon on Galatians, the idea of walking by the Spirit and comparing that to a road with ditches on both sides. What I want to do is I want to apply that illustration to the gospel, I want to apply that illustration to the gospel and to the dilemma that Paul faced as he tried to clarify the gospel in his letter to Romans to help them avoid two equally devastating ditches. I think you'll see as we go through this sermon how this illustration can bring clarity to the gospel of grace by faith, which is the title of this sermon, The Gospel of Grace by Faith. Just a couple of quick things. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he did it primarily to clarify the gospel of Jesus as a gospel of grace as a gift. A gift of righteousness or right, shall I say, the same word for righteousness, a gift of right relationship with God, which is received by faith, not the works of the law. And it appears, as I've read it, that he wrote the letter preemptively to avoid two extremes, 
two ditches on the gospel road. Two ditches that I'll call licentiousness, living like heck, and legalism, following rules, getting there by following rules. And it appears to me that he was trying to head off something that had already happened in the churches of Galatia by making sure that the Romans understood the gospel of grace by faith. So that's because we're looking at this thing chronologically, I'm beginning to see this. What I want to do this morning is to give some context to when and why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. 16 chapters, one sermon. We'll have, we have two more sermons coming on this. Jonah's going to clean up for me. I want to also, how did he clarify the gospel and what that means to us? I'll come back to the road illustration a couple times as we go on. You could call it my version of the Roman road. My hope is that you will be encouraged by the clarity that Paul brought to the gospel, that you would experience the gospel of Jesus today and every day, and that you would love the gospel of Jesus, and that it would transform your life, the gospel. You see, I think that if we love the gospel and we experience it today and every day, we'll be much more likely to share it with our friends, family, and, and neighbors, um, and so forth. So, and, and we will help accomplish the great commission of Jesus by doing so. So I want you to love the gospel. I want you to be in love with the gospel, with Jesus. And I want you to experience the gospel today and every day. So that's the plan for this morning, but let's, let's pray first. Lord God, I pray, Father, that as I share this sermon, that the things that I say here, that you would uh, blow on the sermon and blow the chaff away and help the, the wheat to take root, uh, the seed, the good seed of the gospel. And Lord, that we would hear from you what you have to say to us from the book of Romans today. And we just thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, before, we, so before I prayed, I mentioned something, the Great Commission. As you may know, Jonah and I have been preaching through what we're calling the Great Commission series. We've been doing this since January, through the book of Acts and now the Pauline epistles. Well, if you remember, the Great Commission was given by Jesus as his last word on this earth. After his resurrection, before he went to sit, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he gave the great commission to the disciples. He instructed the disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel to all creations, and to make disciples of all nations. So be witnesses, preach the gospel, make disciples to the whole world. So this, in this sermon series, we've been following how the early believers were faithful to the Great Commission, as described in the book of Acts, written by a guy named Luke. Now, after having done that, what we're doing now, which is really fun for me, first time I've ever really done this like this, is we're circling back to look at the letters that Paul wrote in the chronological order that he likely wrote them in. So far, we've looked at the letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which Paul wrote on his second missionary journey. Then we looked at 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, which I believe he wrote on his third missionary journey. 
And now we come to the letter to the Romans. Probably the, the thickest, uh, maybe some of the uh, meatiest uh, letters from Paul. And I believe he wrote this, like I said, on his third missionary journey, certainly after Corinthians, both letters to the Corinthians, but I think also after, or at least around the same time that he wrote the letter to the Galatians. And that's why we put it in the order we did. So going through these letters this way, like I said, has given us the opportunity to put ourselves in the shoes of the early believers, and especially the Apostle Paul, as he went from place to place, experiencing the various issues and concerns of the day, and writing about them sequentially. So that's what we're doing. That's, so now we get to Romans. So what was going on in the early church when he wrote Romans? Where did Paul write it from? And what might he have been concerned about when he was writing it? Like I said, a close reading of these letters makes us believe that he wrote the letter on his third missionary journey from Corinth. So he's all the way down to Corinth now. He'd written letters as he was going to get there, and now he's there. And he writes Galatians in this time. And now while he's at Corinth, he writes to the Romans. Now we think that he's writing it there, because if you look at chapter 16, he says that he's staying at the home of a guy named Gaius. Gaius is a Corinthian believer, so that's one of the reasons we think that. Now, at this time, Paul had not yet been to Rome with the gospel. But the gospel had already gotten to Rome through other means besides Paul. Paul had not been to Rome yet, uh, but he's writing this letter. The gospel had been there already. So there were several believers in Rome that Paul knew including a couple, you'll recognize this name, including a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who he met originally on his first trip to Corinth and who went with him to Ephesus. And they ended up, remember, they had this interaction with Apollos who went back to Corinth and so forth. Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. But now Priscilla and Aquila had now traveled back to Rome where they started from. Um, and so they had a church, a house church, in their home that Paul also greets at the end of this letter. It's, it's pretty amazing. Now, Paul had just written his letter to the Galatians, I think. Maybe he was doing it just, it's around that time, but I think it was before. He had just written his letter to the Galatians to clarify the gospel, because some folks from Jerusalem, remember the story? Some folks from Jerusalem, the circumcision party, had come to the Galatian churches, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and had told the Galatians that they needed to be circumcised first and follow the rules in order to be saved. So somewhere on his third missionary journey, Paul heard about that. He'd already been through Galatians several times, but he heard about this, and to correct this misinformation that you had to follow the Torah rules, he picked up his pen and wrote Galatians. Let me just say that again. So in order to correct this misinformation that you had to follow the Torah rules, including circumcision, to be saved, he picked up his pen and wrote Galatians. So like Jonas said, 
when he wrote Galatians, he certainly didn't mean them to read it like Torah because he was correcting that with his pen. So here's how I connect. So that's just to put an exclamation point on what I think about what Jonah's sermons these last couple weeks. So here's how I connect these two letters, Galatians and Romans. Galatians and Romans. About the same time in his journey, Paul looked to the east to correct an actual threat to the purity of the gospel by writing a letter to the Galatians to the churches in Galatia where he'd been to several times. So in Corinth, he looks to the east and he sees Galatia over there in his mind, in his heart, and he writes Galatians to correct this issue. Then, at about the same time, he looks to the west, to Rome, where he had never been, at least not as a Christian with the gospel. And he wrote a letter to the Romans to lay a solid, comprehensive foundation for the gospel, almost preemptively to avoid happening there what had already happened at the churches in Galatia. That's why Romans is so thick. That's why Romans is so thick. Because that was the context in which it was written. This thing happened over in Galatia, and he turns in his heart and his soul and spirit to Rome, and he writes Romans. It's, it's very interesting when you put it in context. So I think the basic reason he wrote the letter was to clarify the gospel. Matter of fact, in Romans 1.15, if you turn there, and feel free to, I'm going to basically focus on the first four chapters of Romans. In Romans 1.15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel also in Rome. So eager was Paul that he did that with much of the rest of his letter. <laughs> so eager was he that he actually did that with the rest of his letter. And so with this context in mind, let's dig into how Paul describes the gospel of Jesus, okay? In the opening chapter of the letter, Paul describes, the, actually the first couple of verses, he says, he describes it as the gospel of God, the gospel of God, and that it was promised, to the, promised by God beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, so throughout the rest of this letter, if you looked at the letter, he made dozens and dozens of references to the Holy Scriptures, right? Dozens and dozens. Have you ever written a letter like that? <laughs> Where you just, you're quoting Scripture like every other sentence? In preparation for the sermon, I went through the letter and footnoted all the Scripture references he identified. So I got up in the morning when I was out at China Lake, and I sat there with my little computer. We didn't have internet, so I had to put it all on a Word document. Um, and I went through the entire letter to the Romans, and I footnoted every scripture reference. I looked up the scripture reference, made it a footnote, so I not only had the reference, but I had the, the actual quote, so I could understand this, the extent of the references that Paul went through when he, when he put this letter together. Over 50 footnotes, I think I had like up to almost 60 footnotes, some of those footnotes with multiple scripture references. <laughs> That's how many scripture references Paul puts in there. That's the gospel of God, which was promised by God beforehand by his prophets in his holy scriptures. That's what he says in the opening couple of verses in Romans. Okay, 
But the letter was written to a mixed crowd. Do you remember why Priscilla and Aquila left Rome in the first place? It's because Claudius had kicked them all out. There was just Gentiles left. Now they're back. Somehow they were allowed to come back, so Priscilla and Aquila and some other Jews are back. The letter was written to a mixed crowd with all these scriptural references. What do you think happened when they got the letter? I think the Gentiles who got the letter, they're like, uh, how do we read this? all these scriptural references? Who is this Abraham guy? Can call up, let's call up our Jewish friends and let's read this thing together. That's probably what happened as they, as they unpacked this letter. And I, I smile at the idea that they, that they read it together, and I chuckle at the point in the letter, Romans 3.1, when Paul asks the question, what advantage then has a Jew? And I think about the Gentiles saying, yeah, what advantage has a Jew? <laughs> Isn't that a funny comical thought that they're reading this together? Yeah, what is the advantage of a Jew? And then Paul answers it. And, and, they, and they read it together because that's the only way the Gentiles are really going to be able to understand all these scriptural references. I mean, it took me a while to weed through them. Imagine the drama as they got this letter. Um, and imagine the thickness of the letter. Narelle and I were talking this morning that, you know, it's a thick letter, 16 chapters, and it's some of the meatiest stuff in, in the Bible. Um, Paul wrote the letter, he went to Jerusalem, was in jail for two years up at Caesarea, took the trip on the Mediterranean, where a shipwrecked. It's probably three years before he got there. It probably took them three years to get through Romans. <laughs> right? I don't know. Anyway, so the Holy Scriptures testified to the gospel in advance so that when it was fully manifested, we would recognize it as the gospel and rejoice. But it started in the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament now. And Paul said that the gospel is about the Son of God, Jesus. That's what it's about in the first couple of verses. It's about Jesus. The gospel is primarily not about you, not about me. The gospel is about Jesus. He is the good news of great joy, which is for all the people. That's what the shepherds said at Jerusalem. That's, that's the gospel. It's Jesus. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. That's Bethlehem, right? And declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the gospel concerns Jesus. It's about Jesus and what he did for us. That is what the gospel is about. In verse 16, and almost in reaction to something. Verse 16, Paul says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not. Wow, where'd that come from, Paul? Why would you even say that? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is saying some things that are difficult for Jews to understand. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. To the Jew first, all the Jews are like, yeah. And also to the Greek. And the Greeks are like, yeah, that's us too. <laughs> or the Gentiles. Said in other words, the gospel is the powerful ability of God to save. 
The gospel is the powerful ability of God to save those who believe in him and what God did for them. It's the gospel that is the ability of God. And in verse 17, right after that, he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or the gospel shows us how to be right with God through faith. Through faith, suggesting a contrast with something else. Suggesting a contrast with something else when he says that. Faith through faith. Reveals how to get right with God through faith. By faith, through faith. (laughs) It's just like, I think faith is an important part of this conversation. Then after describing the fallen nature of mankind in chapter 2, the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and the beginning of chapter 3, which I'm not going to look at, but if you want to look at a description of the fallen nature of mankind, look there. It gives graphic detail. (laughs) I'll just reference that to you. But in verse 20, he picks up the contrast with faith. He picks up this contrast. And he says this in verse 20, chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Wow. How many? (laughs) Let me read that again. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Maybe aliens from another planet will be. Maybe angels But no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one will be justified by the works of the law in the sight of God. No one. Has never happened, has never will. Has never happened and never will. That's what it says. And then in verse 21, but now, oh wow, gosh, I hope there's a solution to this puppy. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets witness to it or testify to it, they're pointing to this thing. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness getting right with God through faith In Jesus Christ, for all those believe, there you go. There's the gospel. Boom. There's the gospel. The gospel reveals a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in our performance, not faith in our ability, not faith in our success in following the law. No. That's not the gospel. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Isn't this the same theme of Galatians? Just worded differently to a different population, to a different audience? It is. In both Galatians and Romans, Paul talks about this. Actually, in both Galatians and Romans, he refers to Abraham. Abraham. And you know who Abraham was. I'll just review it. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who God renamed Israel. So Abraham is the father, or shall I say the grandfather, of all of Israel. 
That's the key person that Abraham is. All Jews looked to Abraham as their beloved patriarch, all of them. He was called a friend of God. He was given promises by God, which he believed. And as Lauren read this morning in Genesis chapter 15, as a result of his faith, he was accounted as righteous. As a result of his faith, he was accounted as right with God. He was also the one to whom God originally gave the practice of circumcision as a sign of this covenant promise of being right with God by faith. It was a sign of this covenant promise of being right with God by faith. That's what it was. It's okay. In Galatians, Paul looked at the chronological order. This is really an interesting thing to me. I, just, I, I went through the life of Abraham just to make sure that I, I could do a chronology and I looked up all the days. How old is he here? When, when was the law given? All that stuff. In Galatians, Paul looked at the chronological order of Abraham being considered righteous and compared it with the giving of the law or the Torah by Moses 430 years later. And Paul said that being considered righteous by faith came first, before the law, like 430 years before the law. So he's comparing, he says, which came first? The follow, do you have to follow the law to be saved, like these guys are saying? Well, our own chronology tells us that no, being considered righteous before God by faith came first, then the law came 430 years later, chronologically. But Romans, look what Paul does in Romans. He honed in on the chronological order by looking at what God said in Abraham's life. Just his lifetime, he says, Abraham was considered righteous by faith at this point, and he was circumcised at another point. Which came first? The reference that Laura read from was Genesis 15, like I said. In that time, Abraham was between... I love these numbers. I guess I'm kind of a numbers guy. Abraham was between 75 and 86 years old, somewhere in that range. I wasn't able to narrow it down any further. How old do you think he was when he got circumcised? Anybody know? You don't have to. It's just a rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand. If you look in Genesis 17.1, it says that he was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Oh. <laughs> so to drive the point home, in Romans 4, 8 through 11, Paul said this, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? This is right in the, in the Romans. Was it before or after he was circumcised? Which is it? It was not after he was circumcised. He didn't get circumcised first and then get accounted as righteous. But it was before he was circumcised, he says. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And then I just love this. Paul just pushes it right, right to the limit. He, just, he, 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 he makes this point. He, not only is Abraham the father of all those who are circumcised, but he says this, 
the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That would probably hit... I just imagine the Jews and the Gentiles reading this together and like, and the Jews going like, he's the father of all those who believe without being circumcised. And they look over to their Gentile Greek friends like, I guess Abraham's your father too. That's what they were doing when they got this letter. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Then in verse 416, he says this. That that is why, that is why, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, both Jew and Gentile all his offspring. It is a gospel of grace by faith. Josh, could you go down and get me a water bottle? Thanks, buddy. Okay. Then to emphasize the important role of faith in the gospel in being counted righteous before God, he says this about Abraham. So Romans 4, 20-22, what Lauren read, is commenting on Genesis 15. 15 verses into the Bible, 15 chapters into the Bible. In Romans 4, 20, 22, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced, listen to this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. The focus here is not on what Abraham was able to do. The focus here was on what God was able to do. He was fully convinced, his faith was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Sorry, Joshua's getting a little scared because I'm throwing my arms. Thanks, Josh. Oh, that felt good. Mm. Let's see, where was I? That God was able to do what he promised. The part that Abraham played was in believing that God was able to do it. Now, that meant something, right? That meant that he actually acted out that belief. It wasn't just cognitive. It was an active, living belief that was actually meant something. He put his life on the line because he believed God. But ultimately, the thing that counted as righteousness was that he believed that God was able to do what he promised him. And remember what he promised him? He was childless. He was called exalted father, Abram. He didn't get called Abraham, which meant, I think it's like real father or something. After he had Isaac, or maybe at the same time before. Father of many, thank you. And remember, he took him out and showed him the stars. You ever seen the stars at night without any light pollution? There's a ton of them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. Um, Looking at my own offspring, I have nobody. So shall your offspring be. And he believed God, and God counted that belief as righteousness, being right with God. 
Remember, when we don't believe that God is able to do what he said, what are we actually saying about God? Think about it. When we don't believe that God is able to do what he said he would do, what are we saying about God? I don't mean to be harsh. I want to be very gentle here because I struggle with faith too. But what I'm actually saying when I don't believe God when he says he'll do something is I'm actually kind of saying, well, you're not really trustworthy, God. I can't really be sure that you'll be true. You might be lying. What's worse? (laughs) What's worse? For all you uh, engineers, let me put it into a formula for you. The gospel plus anything equals nothing. You add anything to the gospel, and it's not the gospel anymore. And that's why he got so PG-13 in Galatians. He got passionate about it in Galatians. The gospel plus anything, works, circumcision, equals nothing. It's not the gospel anymore. Okay, finally in chapter 4, he ends with this statement. Chapter 4, verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Wow. But, but, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. This wasn't just, God just didn't have Abraham in mind. Wasn't written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be accounted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The same principle of faith that applied to Abraham in Genesis 15 applies to us today when we believe that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and fully paid the penalty for our sin. That faith is counted to us as righteousness. By faith, we are right with God. Nothing needs to be fixed. We're right with God. By faith in what He did for us. On what He was able to do, not what we are able to do. It's based on what He did. Not on what we do. Other than to put our faith in Him. And I'm talking about a living faith that James would be would agree with a living faith that's demonstrated, that's lived out. But it's primarily faith in God, what he did, not in what we do. That's the gospel of Jesus. Okay, now back to the road illustration, just to bring this home. How do we live out this faith in Christ? How do we live out the gospel of grace by faith? As Jonah said last week, quoting from Galatians 5.13, For you are called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as a context for the flesh, but to serve one another, to love and serve one another. We are free not to live licentiously, but to serve through love. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says this, Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? Hey, I can make this grace really worth it, God. Let me just go out and live like heck. That's what he's saying. Is that what we're to do? I can get all the bang for the buck out of this grace. No, no, that's not what he's saying. We should not do that. 
As a matter of fact, there are people who are saying that about Paul. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? He says, that's not it. So we should experience this grace of the gospel. So, So should we experience this grace of the gospel by moving over from the ditch of legalism into the ditch of licentiousness? No, that's not the point. We were not saved and freed to go back to living in sin. Okay? You might be tempted to swing to the other side of the road in order to avoid that ditch. But guess what? There's an equally devastating ditch on that side of the road. It's called legalism. It's doing with the same thing that the, that the uh, Galatians were being told to do, to live out by these rules. You've got to follow all these rules plus Jesus, and then you can be saved. The point is this. Think about how you drive. You don't travel down a road by focusing on the ditches on either side. In the same way, we don't focus on our performance. The more you do that, the more you put your faith in yourself and not in our Lord, the more you have a possibility for crashing. We don't stay out of the ditches by looking laterally as we drive down the road, right? The way you stay out of the ditches is looking forward looking into what we're going, where we're going, following the way, paying attention to the directions on your GPS. We walk with God the same way, by looking longitudinally, straight forward as we follow the Lord, living in love and being led by the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. Discussion with Philip, with Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, you don't know where I'm going, but you know the way. And Philip, he's really sharp. He says, Lord, how can we know, how can we know the way? How, if we don't, if, how do we get there if we don't know the way? <laughs> it's a very interesting dialogue. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. Follow me. I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the way. So we look to Jesus as the way. We follow him. The most frequent command in the scriptures. I was making disciples uh, through the navigators for about 10 years before I took a hard look at the Great Commission uh, description in uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I said, oh, do you know I, I've never done a study on all the commands of Jesus? I better do that if I'm trying to disciple people. So I did that. I went through all the Gospels, boom, 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 and I listed down all the commands of Jesus. You know, some of them don't reply anymore, like go get a donkey or whatever, you know. But I looked at all the commands of Jesus, and then being a geek that I am, I put them into a frequency distribution, right, to find out what are the most frequent commands and what are the contexts and so forth. The top most frequent command of Jesus was follow me. Follow me. He said it all the time. And one of the most important commands of Jesus was love God and love others the way I loved you. Those are the commands of Jesus. Those are the top, most frequent, and most important commands of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple of Christ and how to walk with God 
how to stay out of the ditches of licentiousness and legalism is by focusing on lordship, love, and leading of the Holy Spirit. There you go. There's your alliteration because I'm a pastor. Stay out of the ditches of licentiousness and legalism, not by focusing this way, but by focusing on the lordship of Christ, the love of God, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's how we do it. That way, you stay out of the ditches. Because life is going to throw you curves. If you're looking like this, you're going to end up in a ditch. It's not about self-performance. Remember that no human being will be considered righteous in the sight of God by the works of the law. No one. It is faith in God, believing His promises, believing in the completed work of Christ on the cross, and acting on that faith that is counted to us as righteousness and gives us right relationship with God. Let's receive the good news of Jesus Christ as a gift of grace that we receive by faith. Let's follow the Lordship of Christ as we walk this road of faith. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, help us to keep our eyes on you, on your ability to do what you promised, not on our ability to perform or succeed in following rules. Help us to believe that when you were delivered up for our trespasses, that we were counted right with you when we put our faith in what you did and what you said. Help us to believe in you and add nothing to that in order to be saved and be right with you. Help us to stay out of the ditches of licentiousness and legalism by keeping our eyes on you, not ourselves. We love you, Lord. We want to follow you, Lord. We want to stay in step with your spirit. Thank you for saving us from our sin through your death and suffering on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.